1: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest Fest for July 29th, 2021, the Medieval Battle Edition. I'm David Floss of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined, of course, by my dear friends, John Dickerson <laughs> of CBS's Sunday Morning Face the Nation from Connecticut. Hello, John Dickerson. H- Hello, David. And Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School, usually from Connecticut, today from New Hampshire. Hello, Emily.
2: Hello, all of New England. Uh, You know, every state, one at a time.
1: This week, we'll talk about the January 6th commission, which got underway. What can it reasonably hope to accomplish? Then, vaccination rates are rising, mask mandates are coming back, vaccination mandates are coming. What else should be mandated to get us out of Delta August, to get us out of the Delta summer? Then... The Time Tax, How Government Wastes Our Time with Paperwork, Confusing Rules, Other Forms of Onerous, Pointless Bureaucracy, a brilliant new article in The Atlantic. The author, Annie Lowry, will join us. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. The House January 6th Commission got underway on Tuesday with gripping testimony from four police officers who were attacked by the mob of pro-Trump protesters who invaded the Capitol, the officers repeatedly called the insurrectionist terrorists. That was an interesting bit of language. Police officer Acolino Gannell described the events of January 6th as more like a medieval battle than a patriotic free expression than, than quiet protest. All of the officers described horrifying events being called racist slurs, being tased, being subjected to chance of kill him with his own gun. The commission's work, according to Republican member Liz Cheney, is to investigate every phone call, every conversation, every meeting leading up to, during and after the attack. But the politics already threatened to overwhelm the work of the commission. Or maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't. So John, what what's the political background that shadows this commission? And how can we avoid thinking about that?
3: Mm, that's a, It's a really good question because you can... First of all, you don't want to fall into the trap of looking at this through a kind of 1980s political lens, um, which is to say both parties are fighting and, you know, each are trying to maximize their political advantage. And it's kind of tug of war with the flag in the middle. I mean, in this case, you're dealing with an event that hasn't happened since the War of 1812, uh, which is to say an assault on the Capitol. And the Republican leader in the House named to the committee, uh, Jim Jordan, the congressman from Ohio, who was on the phone with President Trump the day of this riot? It took Brett Baer three questions to get Jim Jordan to admit that he was on the phone with President Trump. So that was the person that the House leader was going to name to the committee, someone who promulgated the idea that the election was stolen. And the leader of the House Republicans promulgated that idea on January 5th himself. Liz Cheney, the other person on the committee, said to Jordan on the day of the as the riot was going on, UFN caused this. So um, the political background is that one of the two parties is deeply compromised in the search for truth here, both because it was involved in propagating the lie that set the rioters and that they are now in real time. And this is the most interesting thing to me. They are now in real time engaging in all of the behaviors that President Trump engaged in before the riot that testify to the the power of those forces in the Republican Party, pretending things that happened didn't happen, creating diversions to divert from things that are inconvenient to the party. Um, And you might chalk this down to regular politics, except that this is right at the core and center of what democracies are about, which is they have a vote to exchange power through peaceful means so that they don't have riots, insurrections, and death. So you have the most serious possible thing being handled it with that political background.
1: Emily, what is the best this commission could accomplish substantively for the nation, do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I would like to say that what John just described is surprising as well as shocking, but it's not at this point. And I kind of fear that because of the partisan division, lots of people are just going to tune this out because it just feels like a kind of retread of all of these terribly polarizing, angry uh, just, you know, responses we've had to January 6th. I think what the commission could accomplish is some report that gives a kind of definitive comprehensive account of what happened. We've had lots of media reports, but I think something from the government that's official, like the report by the 9-11 commission that we can all look back on as the best the government can do in terms of explaining what happened, all the different failures, insecurity, I think that would be really valuable for the country, at least historically, if not in the present.
3: I would love to put a name to and, and have this committee excavate what to me is the, most, the biggest challenge that we face now, which is not only did a single party deny a reality, which is to say the outcome of the election but then turned that fantasy into a grievance that was so powerful that it could lead to the first attack on the Capitol since 1812. And that in, when that happened, after a brief moment of recoil from the Republican leaders in both the House and the Senate, the powers that, it, that created the riot, nevertheless, became ascendant again in the party, and they are now governing the response to looking into what happened, which is to say, you know, the fact that on the day that the, these, te- these officers were testifying... They were holding a counter-press conference trying to divert from what was being discussed there. Getting at that idea, the idea that a fantasy can cause a riot, and that the party is still in the grips of that, is not just a danger to the Republican Party, it's a danger to the country, and goes to the epistemological problem we're having in politics and in vaccines and everything else. I mean, given
1: what both of you are describing, which is that you have an entire Republican party— with the you know tiny exception of a couple of people, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney and in the house and maybe Mitt Romney and a couple others in the Senate who lie about what happened. There's this incredible episode. Andrew Clyde, a Republican member of Congress I've never heard of, but he helped barricade the house chamber door. He's the person who has since called what happened on January 6th, a normal tourist visit. And, Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, the leaders of the House Republicans, who on January 6th and 7th and through about the 15th of January were saying, holding President Trump accountable, now abjure this investigation as a sham. Um, it does feel like, you know, having these different epistemological universes, is, I mean, obviously, we've talked about this a hundred times, is, is really difficult for the country, but it does mean that, Anything produced by this commission, no matter how true it is, no matter how well-documented it is, no matter how well-sourced it is, will not make any inroad with a significant percentage of the country that does not want to accept the truth. And we knew this going into it, we know it coming out of it, but it's, it's pretty, pretty freaking disheartening.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's part of why I said I think the significance of whatever report gets produced will be historical rather than in the present it's not going to settle the current political divide but you know it will stand for future generations which maybe have some ability in distancing themselves from the moment to have better perspective on it.
1: John, do you think there's a political gain for one party or the other from this commission carrying out its work vividly?
3: Yeah, I mean I think the the gain is for the for the Democratic Party. And when Mitch McConnell says this is going to be a wholly partisan um, process, first of all, you wonder whether that's a compliment coming from him (laughs) Um, (laughs) because he's always been so uh, pleased with doing things that are wholly partisan, his argument being that, you know, if one party has been put in charge of a body of of uh, Congress, and that party chooses to use their power to do things, as he did with Merrick Garland, that that's all, that's perfectly fine. So in that sense, this is following along in that, in that groove. I think the way in which it helps Democrats, to the extent that it does, I mean, I think that there's obviously an attempt to say, oh, this is just, you know, part of regular back and forth and partisanship and uh, I didn't see that tweet. I mean, there's a kind of, you take one portion of, of trying to deny what happened and what is happening by saying it's just partisanship, and then those things like the the four officers who testified on Monday and other things that you can't write down to partisanship, you just ignore the way that that members used to ignore the things that President Trump used to say in his tweets. But I think the, to the extent that it helps Democrats, what it does is that it de- destabilizes the Republican Party or... It calcifies the Republican Party even further in the furthest reaches of Donald Trump's current uh, aspect, and how does that matter? It means that in primaries in Senate races and the maybe primaries in House races, candidates will be vying to be maximalistly Trump, um, and so in the way you do that is by you affirm that the his lie that the election was stolen, and then you affirm that the um, rioters who attacked these police. Uh, were patriots 55 percent of republicans in the latest cbs poll said the rioters were patriots if you have to say that out loud in the face of the testimony of these police officers that is really far out on the edge and that may get win you cheers in the party but a party that is built around that is unstable and so that potentially could uh benefit democrats
1: i don't know man I remember back in 2016 when Trump was running, there was a school of thought, which I think I subscribed to for about second, seven seconds, which was the height and the contradictions, which is if you are a, a Democrat, you should seek to have the most extreme representation of the Republican Party. You should have, seek to have the most outrageous person representing the Republican Party and that that will disillusion lots of people and it will... It will make the Republican Party relatively weak and Democratic Party relatively strong. And, you know, there's something to that. The Republicans are not very popular. But what we've seen is that this extremism that has captured the Republican Party has, A, it has not significantly, it it is unlikely that that means the Democrats will be able to hold the House and Senate for the next cycle. So it it actually won't translate into political, uh, long-term political power for them, at least right now, and B, it has made the country ruinously divided, or it has increased a ruinous divide. So I don't. I, I used to think, oh, heightening the contradictions. At least that's a theory. Now I'm like, no, <laughs> that that seems very very dangerous.
3: Well, I, I guess the uh, the counter argument would be that it did lose the Republican Party, the House, the Senate, and the presidency in the last election. So it didn't work out incredibly well for Republicans. Secondly, in those primaries. In places like Ohio, Iowa, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, where the electorate is um, in the general election uh, a little bit more purple, Ohio not so much, but it can depending on who you nominate, it can you run into the problem that that Republicans faced in 2014 when they had a bunch of people on the on the ballot who were really really super extreme. They ended up losing in states where they could have really had a shot. And so, if this competition within the Republican Party ends up nominating. Extreme candidates in states where there's a more diverse electorate. I think it could have an effect on on control of the Senate and not switching control Um, Or it could undermine even if you even if Republicans nominate a a more palatable general election candidate They could be undermined by what happens in 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 primaries that are basically fought on the turf of The insurrection and and its participants I mean, I don't think that's a crazy thing because we've seen it before when the stakes weren't as high
2: I mean, it is a marker, right? Like a sticker that you can kind of affix to someone that shows that they're not really in touch with reality and not protecting the democracy sufficiently. I realize that's not the only way to spin it, but it has that in it.
3: Yep. The counter argument to my counter argument, of course, <laughs> is that if off-year elections are determined by the most virulent uh, members of both parties, mm. you could imagine Republicans being more whipped up uh, by the kind of Trump strain in the general election than base
1: democratic voters. Slate Plus members, you support the great journalism that Slate does. You also get benefits from Slate by being a member. You get bonus segments on the Gabfest and on other Slate podcasts, as well as no ads on Slate podcasts. It's only a dollar for your first month. And you should sign up by going to Slate.com slash Gabfest Plus. We have a lot of fun with our Slate Plus topics. And I suspect we will have a lot of fun with the one we're going to do today, which is a Dickerson special, when you have forgotten that you've read a book, have you actually read it? Go to slate.com. But suggested by Emily based on someone's tweet. Oh, I for some it's, it was so Dickersonian.
2: <laughs> nope. Came from Jim Sorowicki, a friend of mine, certainly, maybe you guys too, and uh, from Twitter.
1: Well, it'll be great, wherever it comes from. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: So much pandemic news in one week. We had vaccine rates ticking back up because of Delta alarm. We had news that A bunch of companies, universities, and some governments, some local governments are mandating vaccines for employees or attendees or people who use their services. And the Department of Justice declaring that such mandates are fine, even for the emergency use COVID vaccines. At the same time, the CDC restored its masking recommendation for the vast majority of the country and also recommended universal masking for schools next year. So, Emily, it's a lot of stuff happening. I want to start actually with the vaccine mandates. A lot of companies are saying you're going to have to get vaccinated to get back to work. There's this amazing example of this Houston hospital system, which mandated vaccines to much controversy and has had 97% compliance, which is pretty impressive. So do you think vaccine mandates are a key way for us to get out of this? And are you impressed by the Department of Justice's legal claim that they are that they are legit or is that not good enough yet?
2: So I am starting to feel more and more like we need these mandates and that it's better for them to come from employers and maybe local government um, than the federal government. Although President Biden seems to be completely doing an about face after saying like it's not the federal government's role to do this earlier in the week, he's now um, it seems about to announce a mandate of some kind for federal workers. I do think the Justice Department's um, rationale that mandates are legal despite the emergency use authorization is pretty persuasive, but I think it's not the same thing as final approval. So it sounds like the Secretary of Defense is not going to mandate vaccines for the military until there's final approval. And I have to say I get that, and I think like this part of it is really on the FDA, but I'm also relieved in the meantime that employers and some local governments are taking this step because if you think about the different interventions for preventing more spread from Delta, it just seems like increasing vaccine uptake is far more effective than these new mask mandates, because the people who are much more likely to abide by the mask mandates are the people who already (laughs) live in the places where right now the spread of Delta is low and the vaccine rate is higher. And so it just seems like what really needs to happen is a push among the people who have not yet jumped on board to get vaccinated I mean, I really think in a lot of places that people need to push um, and and this really could be it.
1: John, there is this new CDC return to masking recommendations, indoor masking for even for people who are vaccinated. But already we hear from governors in red states, for the most part, Republican governors who are saying this is not, they're not interested in this. They're not going to honor it. They're not going to make it force of regulation in their states. Do you you think that CDC move is likely to be helpful? Is it going to discourage vaccination? Is it going to like reignite a culture war that seemed to have actually been subsiding? Well,
3: I think all of those things are possible. And it also depends on where you are in the country. I mean, we have a couple of problems. One is that the CDC isn't measuring all the things it needs to be measuring to know whether the policy is absolutely um, vitally necessary, and so some of this is guesswork. So, for so, according to my conversations with Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, the FDA, the, the CDC has only been studying uh, breakthrough uh, infections that lead to hospitalization. So, if you've been vaccinated and you get infected, they don't have a count of that unless you get to the hospital. Why does that matter? Because it matters on in terms of how. Uh, effective the vaccine is against Delta, not just against any old COVID, but against Delta, if we know that, that because it's so much more transmissible, it creates just a greater opportunity for those who are already vaccinated to either be carriers or to become infected, if you knew that number, you would say, okay, masks are important as a mitigation measure. Now, the second thing you would have to know, though, is Are any old masks important? Gottlieb says the only masks that are really important if you're worried about spreading the Delta variant because it's so transmissible are the N95s or the very, very high quality masks. So it's not just masks or no masks, but you got to make sure you have these high quality masks. And then it matters where you wear them. Um, Is a high prevalence environment in the Northeast different than a high prevalence environment in the South? And and arguably high prevalence environment and the South is a redundancy because in in you know a lot of these states Arkansas Alabama Mississippi have um, low vaccine rates, so that's just the kind of are we scoping the problem and and offering the best. Public policy. Gottlieb's argument is, masks may not even make sense. The argument may be that the better thing to do is in in small settings indoors. You you just shouldn't have more than ten people, um, or you should go back to the six foot rule. That that's better than than masking as a way to get at the public policy problem of this moment. But all of this gets to a larger problem, which is that we are now at, you know, a year and a half into hearing things from CDC. And even the most patient person who recognizes the shifting nature of science and recognizes that Delta is different than the COVID we were dealing with six months ago, has to feel, even if you are deeply sympathetic of CDC and CDC hadn't botched the original testing and a variety of other things, you'd have to say, good gracious, like, what the hell? And then you add politics, and it's even worse. So where this matters, I think, to me, in addition to all the things you raised, David, is what's the policy going to be for kids when they go back to school for those who are under 12? Because that is about the efficaciousness of masks, A, and then B, the transmissibility of Delta from those who are already vaccinated. And answering those questions in a way that's solid enough to then create public policy is a huge deal. And then you add in the fact that people get their most emotional when it comes to kids. And it means that going back to school is going to be deeply fraught.
1: When you get a good gracious out of John Dickerson, you have truly shaken him to the core. That is, I'm with you, John on that. The, um, I, I, Emily, I am fairly shocked that here we are this far into, into this pandemic. And we have so little clarity as, as everyday citizens about, masks and how effective they are and what kind of masks and where to use them and so little good guidance about it it's shocking that here's this thing which has become a a a massive issue cultural issue a massive political issue a massive scientific issue and yet we as citizens know a ton about how effective vaccines are and yet masks which are which are the thing which we live with every day where you always have one shoved in a pocket shoved in a bag we're living in in a in a cave of darkness
2: Yeah. Why haven't we done human challenge trials for this um, or some other kinds of trials that would give us better information? Because if they're doing only a minimal amount of good, especially for vaccinated people, even just in terms of spread rather than self-protection, why bring up this hugely divisive issue that's going to make people feel so frustrated and despondent? I really share your frustration about that.
1: What did you guys make of the recommendation for universal masking for kids? I, for schools, I found it very, very disheartening. I think it's going to discourage a lot of return to school because people are going to be very anxious about school. And it feels like overwrought. There of course, there are hundreds of children who have died from COVID, hundreds. And each one of those deaths is is incredibly tragic for the world, for the families. Is this the only way back? I mean, is this the is this the only solution to to consign everyone to a year of masking and to know we know as we do that, that we're going to reduce learning, reduce future outcomes for these children, uh, put more children at risk in other ways. It really depresses me.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I care the most about the kids coming back to school in person. There is so much evidence that that is crucial for them. I worry, as you do, that this makes school seem scary. And so the people who have been keeping their kids out out because of fear are going to think, like, this is a sign that they should maybe continue remote schooling. And that worries me. I also just can't stand this blanket protocol for the whole country when the spread and the rate of COVID is so different in different places. Like, if you live in a state like Vermont that is really, like, gotten this under control unless that changes. It just doesn't make sense for local school boards to have all the kids mask. I would say that is still true where I live in Connecticut. And yet the CDC didn't recognize any of that. I saw this morning that in some cities, public school students taking the bus are going to have to wear masks on the bus, but the bus drivers are not going to be required to be vaccinated. I mean, come on, like that just doesn't make any sense in terms of what we know about public health measures right now.
1: John, last question on this topic. You, I think, have been, like me, really interested in the going back to work questions. Do you think that the what's happening with the mandates, with, with Delta, with some companies proposing full-scale return to work, some companies clearly going in other directions, do you think we're going to have a big return to work in September? Do you think there's going to be a rebellion among white-collar workers? Uh, do you think that Office work has permanently changed, or just we just don't know yet.
3: The first thing I'll say is some places already have delayed. Apple has delayed the return to its campus um, a month because of Delta. But I think the bigger damage that Delta does is um, that it steals our imagination. And because the whole concept of building back better which we've talked about many times on this gab even before it was a slogan for the Biden administration. And I'd like to reorient it to its original meaning, which is when you have a catastrophe, there are opportunities to think smarter and better about the way you return to business and to be more equitable and to be just generally wiser. And those are all available to business right now as both employers and employees are rethinking. There's also an economic set of incentives that are shifting and changing and we're still trying to get our hands around um, in terms of the leverage that workers now have in certain sectors of the economy for wages and, and, um, and, and benefits. And if we are not imaginative enough, there are ways in which the reshaping of the workplace is going to mess people up so in other words big corporations can afford to compete with new uh, for newly leveraged workers by offering them childcare or offering them free college textbooks or free college. But smaller mom and pop organizations can't do that because they have thinner margins, which then takes you back to public policy. What if What if they didn't have to do that? What if public policy took care of some of those things? It would create uh, perhaps a more vibrant economy. All these questions are hard to answer when you're um, forced into the into the what's right in front of your nose with the Delta variant. And I think that in private industry, Delta is going to Um, stomp on some of the interesting questions about remote work. The benefit, as you've often talked about, David, of of human contact and the social animal part of our lives. And it's a shame, because if you don't think about those now, once everybody gets back into the office or back into the sort of post-COVID swing of things, you won't have a chance to reorganize the world around ways that could be much more efficient, both for capitalism, but also for individuals who are trying to live lives of meaning.
1: incredibly obvious and something that's so obvious you didn't even notice it something that's obscene and terrible and intolerable and yet it's tolerated because we just don't even notice it that is the case with the time tax an article by annie lowry in the atlantic this week annie shows with stunning example after stunning example how the united states government and also other institutions in the u.s have set out to make it difficult and sometimes almost impossible for people to get its benefits and made it especially hard for the poorest among us to do that. It's really about how bureaucracy is pointlessly, 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 stupidly wasting time, energy, and money and eroding the social na- safety net and eroding confidence in government. And once you see, you see it, you're like, oh my God, what are we doing? What the hell is going on? So we're joined by Annie, frequent GabFest guest, and you're an Atlantic staff writer, I'm guessing, Annie.
4: I am right, yeah, yes. because
1: everyone is uh, yes, everyone is, uh, so thanks thanks for. That's
4: where we're headed, every last one of us <laughs> uh,
1: Annie, let's start with Europeans, you talk to Europeans, they always talk about how hard it is to be an American, yeah, which by which they mean that some simple things that government can do to help are made very hard in this country. so can you tell us what that means, or cite cite us some examples just so we understand what the time tax is.
4: Absolutely. I kind of think that this falls into a couple buckets. So one is that American safety net programs, if you qualify for one, you're likely to qualify for several. If you qualify for food stamps, for instance, it's pretty likely that you qualify, though not entirely certain that you qualify for something like Medicaid. And none of these programs talk to each other. They are administered by completely different agencies with completely different rules. Some are federal, some are state, some are local. So when you apply for one thing, uh, very often there's no cross eligibility to others, although in some places in some states there are. So that's kind of one thing. The second is that American programs tend to come with huge numbers of hurdles beyond just are you poor enough to get this, which is a hurdle in and of itself. So there's often really complicated enrollment and then maintenance criteria. So one example of this is something called work requirements. So to get a food stamp or a SNAP benefit, as they're sort of formally known, You have to log in and demonstrate that you are either working or looking for work in most cases. So they suspend that requirement during recessions, but generally you have to do that. And that's actually kind of really annoying to do because you have to have a way to do it. And so people are constantly getting kicked off for just not being able to meet the requirement, even if they are working or looking for work. Uh, notably, the work requirements do not actually <laughs> increase the number of people who are working, which is a really important part of that. They're completely ineffective. Um, and then the third thing is that um, very often, even once you have some kind of benefit, um, there's these sort of like ongoing, this is kind of part of the second thing too, right? Like, you know, these ongoing paperwork requirements that tend to kick people off really quickly. And in other countries, they don't have have, have that or do that. And notably, this is, this is very, very true for safety net systems, but it's also true when you kind of step back and think about, like, why, why do we have to file our taxes? The government already knows how much we owe. People talk about how hard it is to be released from a sentence and then have all this paperwork and all these check-ins to do, that kind of thing. Why do we have this really complicated system of health insurance when, you know, in other countries it's just provided um, and you pay for it with your taxes? There's, you know, like a lot of other examples of this. Once you start seeing it, you kind of see it everywhere.
2: Yeah, that is so true. And I thought the one of the genius aspects of this piece is you're calling this a time tax, because just giving it a name allows you to kind of focus in on it. And I wondered if the idea for this piece kind of crept up on you over time, partly because you had these a bunch of vivid different examples, and partly because it's something I've noticed over and over again in my reporting, mostly about poor people. But I think, I tend to just kind of skip over it because the problem is like it's very frustrating, but it also feels kind of boring and routine. And um, and one of the things you mentioned, which is so important, is the tendency to blame people when they have trouble with this. Like, oh, if they were just more clever and with it, they were fi- will figure it out. And I thought you did such a great job of showing why that's just really not true. To the latter point, there's this really interesting
4: body of evidence that's coming from a group of researchers in really disparate fields, anthropologists, doctors, um, researchers of stress that show that being poor in a high inequality society like the United States actually impacts your cognitive abilities. And so some of the research on this basically shows that that being poor is the equivalent to like pulling an all-nighter. It's so stressful. You have so many decisions to make that it's really hard to just keep up with paperwork. So even really generous benefits people miss out on because they're just struggling so much to stay alive. It's like, I can't fill out a 40-page form right now, right? I can't even think about that. The impetus for the piece came from something um, I was doing reporting It's probably like half a decade ago now with um, some low-income parents in Mississippi. And they were making this point that it was so onerous to get benefits in the state. The former slave states tend to have particularly difficult systems (laughs) to work with, which is purposeful and perhaps not surprising. And they were saying that the amount of time it would take to get a benefit was like It was like a part-time job. It was like 10 or 20 hours, and the benefit wasn't worth much. And so why would you spend 20 hours getting a benefit worth like 100 bucks that's just going to go away in six months anyway? And I was like, oh, I wonder if because of the Paperwork Reduction Act, the government keeps track of how much time it takes people to get these because you can sort of imagine that you could estimate the amount of time it takes to get something at the prevailing minimum wage, and then if the benefit isn't worth more than that – it doesn't make any economic sense to get it and there's all sorts of other reasons why you might not want to spend your time doing it. And the answer is the government doesn't. So, OIRA, which is this obscure but really powerful government agency, is charged with figuring out paperwork burdens, but it only applies to certain types of federal paperwork. And so it doesn't pick up things like interviews or uh, like certain work requirements levied by the state, or like a drug test levied by the state isn't going to get picked up by OIRA. And so, you know, um, for the WIC, the Women's Infants Children's Program, which is designed to help really low-income parents get things like formula and diapers, you have to go to an in-person interview generally to get the benefit. But the government was estimating that the benefit took like 15 minutes to get. And that was only because the federal part of the paperwork was really short, but all the other requirements were really difficult.
3: Andy, I was wondering, I came to this issue actually studying, it's in part the reason for the growth of the presidency. Both Teddy Roosevelt and FDR tried to improve the administrative state to make it more efficient. Um, And when the story that Teddy Roosevelt told was about the Indian Affairs Agency, which was helping, you know, Indian reservations, and somebody tried to order a stove for the winter— and Roosevelt's punchline was the the stove arrived, and so did spring, that the government was so slow in trying to help this portion of the populace that, that um, you know, it took an entire season for a simple stove to reach the, the Indian infirmary. Back then, it was a turf war between the presidency and Congress. Is part of the reason that nobody actually tends to this tax that you so beautifully identified, that there's n- there's no constituency politically for... You don't you don't gain glory in politics by um, streamlining these programs, or maybe you do. But but how how do the structures of politics um, allow this condition to continue?
4: This is one of the few places where I really think both sides deserve different blame, but a lot of blame. Republicans are enormously adept at using the rulemaking process to winnow or preclude access to things that are are legal or are supposed to be, a, a, you know, accessed or allowed. So. One example of this is something like abortion access, where they make it so hard to get an abortion that even if an abortion is technically legal, you know, if you can't procure that, right, you have no right to it. You can see this in something like voting; they they purposefully make voting really difficult, and lo and behold, people don't vote. And they do this with safety net access too. During the Trump administration, several states started to or attempted to apply work requirements in Medicaid, a program that had never had them. This was was like catastrophic, right? And there was no point. Again, it wasn't going to make anybody do any additional work. It just caused people in like the state of Arkansas to lose their Medicaid benefits. Republicans are perfectly happy to reduce social spending through paperwork hassle. And there's also this kind of ideology of like, well, you don't want to make the the safety net a hammock, right? (laughs) You want it to be hard. You want the government to be reforming their behavior. This is like a very strong ideology. Democrats, the <laughs> the issue is that, and I think that again, because of inequality, they are terrified of anybody getting something that they don't, quote unquote, deserve. So there's that really great ProPublica package on people's taxes. They got seen very high income Americans tax returns. And it showed that that I think it was Jeff Bezos one year got like a child tax credit because he didn't have any paper income. So he technically qualified for it. And there's this big outcry of, how dare these people get that benefit? That's He's too rich to get that benefit. Democrats are, are terrified of that, and because they're operating in a high-inequality society and, and they want to you know, make the system more progressive, that means doing a lot of means testing. It complicates things. I'd also say that there's just a general neglect of making stuff work, right? The federal government really punishes the state's you know, for having inexact counts, right, for letting anybody get a benefit that they shouldn't get. But there's actually no incentive system for requiring the states and the agencies to make sure that everybody gets a benefit (laughs) if they should get it. And so these places, they become kind of like fraud detection programs, and the incentives are all screwed up. So I think it's really the whole system. And again, I don't think that everybody deserves equal blame. But I do think this is a place where the Democrats want to think long and hard about how hard they've made things.
3: One of your great facts in the piece is the EITC, which is a Reagan-era... The
2: EITC is the Earned Income Tax Credit. Mm -hmm.
3: Which conservatives, I don't even know what to call the various gradations of the the Republican Party anymore, but which sort of Reagan-era conservatives used to champion as a kind of great program. I think you said 22% of eligible recipients miss out. So even programs that Republicans have supported as a kind of bridge from welfare to work... Are, are being totally missed out because of the ta- time tax that you suggest.
1: So, Annie, I just want to cite this incredible anecdote that you have in the piece about uh, an attempt in Michigan to streamline some of their paperwork, and they're talking about some 42-page application that that these people who are working to streamline had a group of local politicians fill out. They got to the question, tell me the date of the conception of your children. Like That was an example of like how outrageous the... The, the kind of work and the inquiry and the intrusiveness could be. So you cite Michigan as a state which is now trying to make this somewhat easier. We do have the example of Social Security, which isn't so bad. I think Medicare and Medicaid are not so bad, or Medicare in particular is not so bad.
4: Yeah, Medicaid, um, once you have it, is not, is not too bad.
1: But those are really exceptions. What is it that we as a people could do to pressure our government to reduce the time tax?
4: I think the really hard thing is that you need legislative fixes. The states are operating under a system of federal rules, and in a lot of cases, you need the federal government to actually change some of the legal requirements of these programs or at least create bigger waivers so that the states could do more to streamline these systems. If you go to a country like Finland, there is one agency that you can call. You can call them on the phone. It's an 800 number and they will tell you what you might be eligible for and help you enroll in almost everything. Some things are controlled at the local level, but you know, most of the big insurance programs are controlled through this single agency. You know, the United States could do something like that. They could have like a universal navigator service that could kind of skate on top of all of these programs. One thing that, that idea that some folks have had is that the federal government could actually just take over the work of qualifying people for benefits and still leave administration to the states. That would help a lot. There's like, like no end of ideas <laughs> or options to make it better. But you do actually need, um, a lot of executive effort and, and I think probably a bill in Congress for the really big stuff. And it's just, you know, it's not going to be easy to pass, and it's not sexy. I don't think people win elections necessarily by being like, we're going to make it so that the poorest people, who, who Americans are often really broadly skeptical of, have unbelievably simple, enduring access to the safety net. It's really tough. The current administration cares a lot about this. You know, it's just, it's a pretty heavy lift.
1: Annie Lowry's piece in The Atlantic is called The Time Tax. It is in itself not a time tax, so check it out. Annie, thanks for coming. Come back anytime.
4: Thanks, everybody. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Let's go to cocktail chatter. John, when you're having a a cocktail, as one does in Connecticut, I think of Connecticut as being the cocktailiest state. If there is a cocktail state, it is Connecticut. Uh, What will you be chattering about?
3: That's a good, that's a really good point, David. I feel like
1: that's true. Um, although. In a kind of, in a kind of alcoholic Cheever-esque way, Yes, exactly. You know? <laughs> no, I was just thinking
3: of John Cheever exactly as you said that. I mean, you've got some, chi- somewhere adjacent to the cocktail are some chinos and, um, and some bitter recriminations for um, slights long ago. Um Anyway, but not in the Dickerson household where it's one flowering bath of love after another. Um... My uh, chatter is about a piece in the um, in the Times on um, misinformation for hire. Max Fisher wrote the piece. Chris Krebs, who was the Trump administration official in charge of cybersecurity and infrastructure security at Homeland Security Agency, has been talking about this too. Is basically the way in which the misinformation that we've we've recognized and suffered from as a result of the Chinese uh, Chinese and Russian efforts to destabilize our public square. We've seen it with respect to vaccinations, where it's not not just misinformation from the anti-vaxxers, but also organizations and outfits that are out there whose job it is to confuse the public. Um, And this is happening all over the world. And there are now private companies, sort of PR company type things that are popping up with these misinformation campaigns. And it just brings us back to this thing we've wrestled with for so long, which is the benefit and necessity of learning how to sort public information quickly and cleanly, and also avoid um, all the rabbit holes that are being created either by stupidity, bad faith, and now this new avenue, which is private industry creating Mm. false information avenues for people to go down. It was a great piece and an important um, topic.
1: Emily, usually from the Cocktaily State of Connecticut, now from the Less cocktaily, but but sort of uh, also maybe a winter cocktaily state of New Hampshire,
2: yeah, or you could have like, you know, just a nice beer by the lake in New Hampshire, or wherever. I discovered a novelist this week, um, Britt Bennett. I'm sure I should have discovered her long ago, but I read a book by hers that I'm still thinking about called The Vanishing Half, which is about two sisters in Louisiana. I won't say more than that because I didn't know anything about it when I started reading and the surprises in it were excellent, I thought. And she's also the author of an acclaimed novel called The Mothers, which I'm now about to start reading. So um, if you haven't already checked this book, out. I'm sure I'm totally late to this and many people will write in to say, how did you not know about Brit Bennett years ago? But in any case, I recommend these books.
1: My chatter, I went back to a museum for the first time since pandemic. It was really great. I'm not a huge museum goer, but it was really great. It was a great way to have an activity. My girlfriend and I went to the National Gallery of Art in DC and had a wonderful time. And in particular, we we're wandering through the Degas exhibit and the Degas, there's a bunch of Degas dancer statues, which, you know, now that I've learned a little, very creepy. They're nude Mm. statues. Very, very, very creepy. Didn't love those. But within the Degas um, is a set of six paintings by a painter I've never heard of named Louis-Maurice Boutet de Monvay, who is a French painter from the early 20th century. And they're paintings of the life of Joan of Arc. And they are incredible they're sort of art deco they're almost or maybe they're pre-raphaelite i don't really know what they're incredibly ornate and precise everyone's robes have you know every little bit of fabric is delineated perfectly and they're all there's gold leaf everywhere with the the robes and the faces are done in perfection with photographic perfection it is they are magnificent if you Magnific. get the chance to go see them they are magnifique they are magnifique uh, please go see them. I, I've been trying to learn more about them. I have a cousin who's a Joan of Arc scholar. I'm going to hit her up and maybe I'll learn more and tell you more about it. But, but if you can get to the National Gallery in the Degas exhibit, the Joan of Arc paintings, wow, knock your socks off. Listeners, you tweet chatter to us at atslategaffes. Please tweet us some great summer chatter. Please tell us about what you're reading, what you're up to, what has fascinated you. And we have an excellent chatter this week. From Ryan Good, and it's a Twitter thread posted by the digital artist Gabriel Hoyle. Let's hear Ryan talk about it. Hello, GabFest. My Cocktail Chatter is a Twitter thread by digital artist
3: Gabriel Hoyle, who has undertaken the quest to create a modern branding scheme for every U.S. president.
4: Some of my favorites include John Quincy Adams, Martin Van Buren, and Zachary Taylor, but
1: they're all pretty great. Anyone interested in graphic design should check them out. Thanks. Love the show they're so good they're so good
2: i really liked the one for george washington
1: the john quincy adams one i think was just a q that was pretty great uh they're, they're not they're, anymore what do you mean
3: well q on.
1: oh
2: <laughs> wait come on we're gonna rescue the letter q q cannot be stolen from us forever
3: well no i know but as a single icon Given that it okay. was on the shirts of rioters at the at the Capitol, it's just, it's, it has
1: a little complexity. None of them make perfect sense or anything. The tip, There's a tippy canoe that the William Henry Harrison one is like the Harrison with a little canoe over it. Didn't good. go with the log cabin, I guess. Anyway, that's our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher this week is Grace Woodruff. Bridget is on a well-deserved vacation. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGapFest. and please tweet your chatter to us at, at SlateGapFest. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you anon next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? As we were doing our Slate Plus promo, I was under the misapprehension that this was a John Dickerson idea because it's so John Dickersonian. But Emily, it is apparently from you via Jim Surowiecki.
2: Yeah, I saw this and I thought of John and of you. So okay, if you have completely forgotten a book, did you ever read it? I kind of am going to go with no, because (laughs) I find this to be such a conundrum for myself. Like, if you really just, it's like a blank space in your head. The good part is you get the enjoyment of reading it over again, because there's nothing to disturb in your brain. And I have really had this experience where it was as if... I'd never read it. I have this with movies, too, I have to say. Like, or all I remember is whether I liked it or not. I guess that's another thing we should talk about, whether that counts as having read it. And this whole thing always makes me really wish I had kept a list of books and movies, which people do, like Pamela Paul, editor of the New York Times Book Review, wrote a great book about her list. Like, I really wish I had done that. Um, And I wonder if you all have that regret or have started to keep such a list.
3: I've kept a list of all the books I've read because... Well, not really. I I started to keep a list many years ago of the books I've read because I realized I was forgetting that I had read books. And I had this experience walking uh, the other night with Anne when I couldn't remember For Whom the Bell Tolls and Farewell to Arms, as far as I know, are the same book. I read them both, I guess. Um,
2: (laughs) They're both by Ernest Hemingway. Yes, yes, I know, but...
3: um, (laughs) Anyway, so that for me was a feeling—I mean, basically, there are a lot of books now at the—we the, the we have an intersection here of my being an English major, which was the highest period of my reading life, and my memory, which is almost completely destroyed from that period. So I have all these book sh- books on the shelf from college that I look at and think— Did I read that? And then I open it, and there are margin notes throughout the book showing deep engagement with the book, and I couldn't tell you the first thing about it, and it is a sadness. But I feel like I read those books, obviously.
1: Well, first of all, there are lots of things that one has forgotten which have still marked you, that have still imprinted on you in some way. So you could have completely read a book and completely forgotten you've read a book, and yet it still had an impact on you. And that's true of also a piece of music or a thing that you ate or a painting that you... That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today